Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. I am Ashanti Golar, the founder of the Brown Girl's Guide, and I'm so excited to have you join us today. If you're listening at home, in your car, at work, I hope that you will really enjoy the conversations that we're going to have. Everything that we cultivate is with women of color in mind, and it's meant to inspire you, to make you feel powerful, to make you want to take control of your own political future. You're going to hear from an amazing woman today who inspires me on a daily basis and who, through her work in politics, is continuing to make changes every day. So sit back and enjoy as we talk to Leader Stacey Abrams. Before we get to Leader Abrams, let me tell you a little bit about myself and why we're doing this podcast. I realized I was interested in politics at a very young age. I say I was one of those weird kids where I would be, why watch Sesame Street when you can watch C-SPAN and there's people arguing and fighting and they care about the direction of the country. Five, and the nays are 222. The motion is not adopted. But even being very young, watching C-SPAN, I realized I didn't see a lot of people that looked like me. There weren't a lot of women, and there weren't a lot of women of color. So even at that age, you think, can I do this? Can I be in politics one day? Because if you don't see it, you don't think that you can be it. I was coming up on 10 years in D.C., and I was just reflecting one morning. I was leaving an event, and I had an email from a young woman who was asking for advice. And I just started getting more and more of these emails. And I just thought, what do I wish that I had when I was coming up in politics? And I thought I would like a place where I could go and see women that look like me, who could talk to me about their experiences, and not just the easy stuff, the hard stuff about how do you react when you are the only brown girl in the room? How do you put together that great resume? What does it mean to find a political mentor and what do you want them to do? What are some of the questions you could ask? But really also to have the opportunity to hear from these women because I realized how privileged I was to be in rooms with these women, but that's because of what other women had done for me and how do I help pay it forward? And I thought... Well, I could do a guide. Like, but what what does a guide mean? And I was like, blogs. People like blogs. People read blogs. Like, what if I emailed some of my friends and we just did a blog where we wrote about different political subjects? I could have a part of the site where I could share information where women can go to get training to run for office or to learn how to be an activist, a campaign staffer. I could have a site that shows the latest news from women of color in politics. And I thought, I really want this to be very friendly, very cool, just a bunch of girlfriends. And girlfriends just became girls. And it was going to be Black women and brown women because I wanted to make sure I had the diversity. And then it just became the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics. I knew that I really wanted to begin with a bang, someone who was just the epitome of what women of color could achieve in politics. And who better to do that than Stacey Abrams? 
She was going to be the first Black woman Democratic nominee of a major party for governor. I'm running because I want every Georgia family to have the freedom and opportunity to thrive. You deserve nothing less, and I know Georgia can deliver a whole lot more. She was doing it in a truly authentic way. She was talking about the fact that she was single, she wore her natural hair, she had debt from taking care of her family, and she was, for me, and is the epitome of what women of color can do, what they can be, and that you don't have to change who you are to be successful in politics. And I'm very fortunate that I knew Stacy. Being in politics, I would always see her at events, just fangirl over her, but was never able to go up and introduce myself until we were at an event one day and my good friend Jessica Bird was walking her around. And I came over and I said, Stacy, I'm Ashanti Golar. It's so great to meet you. I'm a huge fan. And she replied, I follow you on Twitter. I know who you are and you do good work. And I almost died. And she took out her card. And on the back of the card, she wrote her personal email address and her personal cell phone number. And she said, if you ever need anything, call me. And for me, that was just an amazing thing. Because I've never had anyone ever do that before. And that's the power of Stacy. So when it came to getting ready to do the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, I took that card, which I have pinned on a bulletin board in my office, and I emailed her. And I said, Stacy, I hope everything is well. I'm loving the governor's race. You're killing it. I'm starting this blog. Would love to have you be our first fangirl spotlight. And she replied back in two minutes saying yes. And with doing the podcast, I wanted also for her to be the first person that we talked about. Because even though she didn't win that governor's race, she was the first non-elected official in Congress to deliver the Democratic response to the State of the Union. She is what the Democratic Party is at this point. A lot of people say that she's our future. I say that she is our now. And emailed her again saying, Stacy, we're turning the Brown Girl's Guide into a podcast. And she immediately responded back. And she just has so much to share, particularly when it comes to not giving up. After she lost that governor's race, she could have just gone into the private sector, but she immediately launched new initiatives to make it easier, not only for people in Georgia to vote, but for people across the country. She takes her experiences, and even though they're personal, she thinks, what can I do to make life better for other people? Thank you again so much for taking the time out. The first thing that I would like to talk about is your work with Fair Fight. This was something that really excited me to see because it's just really the embodiment of who you are as a leader. After the gubernatorial election, you took all of your energy, your love for the people of Georgia across the United States And you said, how can I make this better? And that is what you're doing with Fair Fight when it comes to voting laws, voter protection, voting machines in this country. So can you tell us a little bit more about Fair Fight and how can we support your efforts with it? 
Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me again. What I know about our rights in our nation is that you have to constantly fight, that no right is ever permanent or secured, and that particularly when it comes to civil rights, our responsibility is not only to enjoy the rights that we have, but to always carve out space for others. I enjoyed an extraordinary privilege of being the Democratic nominee for governor in 2018, being the first Black woman to be the nominee of any major party in the history of our country. And I was part of, I believe, a transformational campaign. We had the most diverse campaign in Georgia's history, and I would argue probably in the country. We reached communities that had been long ignored And it worked. We tripled the number of Latinos. We tripled the number of Asian Pacific Islanders. In 2014, 1.1 million Democrats voted uh, for governor. In 2018, 1.2 million African Americans cast their ballots for me. We increased the youth participation rates by 139%. And we did so at the same time that we increased the white participation rate for Democrats, which meant that we could center communities of color, We could engage the marginalized, we could reach out to the dispossessed, and we could build a coalition that reflected the needs and values and the composition of Georgia. But we also know that while we were doing this hard work of bringing people to the table, we know that I had an opponent who was an architect of voter suppression who had spent a decade doing his best to mute the voices that I was trying to help lift up. Georgia's hardline conservative Secretary of State has been kind of a pioneer in ways to make voting harder in Georgia. Uh, His office has been really gung-ho about canceling people's voter registrations in that state. His office canceled over 600,000 voter registrations last year alone. They've been closing voting precincts, often in poor and minority districts. This year, he's also running for the state's highest office. And in the end, his schemes worked. We were unsuccessful in that We know that thousands of voters were denied their right to vote in the state of Georgia. Everything I do from now forward will not change that election outcome. I will not become the governor of Georgia should our litigation be successful. I will not become the governor of Georgia should those voters be put back on the rolls that were purged, should these precincts reopen. And so I want people to understand that for me, this isn't about my success and my future. This is about our future. But more importantly, it's about those very people who did not think they would be counted. I need them to know that they were seen, they were heard, and we are fighting. And so it began with my non-concession speech. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in the state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear. This is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right, true, or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. And with the launch of Fair Fight Action. And Fair Fight is very intentionally named. We believe that there must be a fair fight in our elections. And that means not just about candidates, but citizens should have a fair chance to let their voices be heard. And to make that so, we have to take action. And we've taken three actions. Number one is litigation. We have filed a massive federal lawsuit that contends that while the Secretary of State used some legal means and some illegal means to suppress votes, that when yoked together, his activities constitute 
a constitutional disenfranchisement of voters. It's de facto disenfranchisement. And using the same narrative and theory of the case that led to Brown v. Board of Education, what we argue is that whether or not the law on its face says that people can vote, if the systems in place deny them access and agency, it does not work. And so we are fighting in court to force the state to fix the systems from registration access to ballot access to ballot counting. That means no more closures of poll places. That means if you apply for an absentee ballot, you get it. If you submit it, it counts. That 1.5 million voters should not be purged from the rolls. That exact match that denies you the ability to actually even get through the registration process has to be eliminated. But it also means that writ large, we will have a true system of voter access in the state of Georgia. But it's insufficient to simply rely on litigation, so we're also pushing for legislation. Legislation to fix the voting machines. Georgia has the most hackable machines in the country. And right now we're fighting a a war in the Capitol where they're trying to replace the currently hackable machines with more expensive hackable machines. And so we're fighting to make sure that the legislation that passes fixes some of the problems that we saw, but also doesn't create new problems that further allow the erosion of trust in our democracy. And third, and I would say sometimes most importantly, we are fighting through advocacy. People need to remember that the right to vote isn't just a right in and of itself. It's the connection between that right and the lives they want to live. If you want access to health care, you need to be able to vote. If you want access to criminal justice reform, you need to be able to vote. If you want children to have the right to a quality education, their family members, their community members should have the right to vote in their school board elections. And so we are spending our time connecting the dots between the action of voting and the advocacy for voting and the very policies that matter. And so that's what Fair Fight Action is. It's an organization designed to ensure electoral integrity and true voter access in the state of Georgia and beyond. And how are some ways that we can support the Fair Fight Action work that you all are doing? First and foremost, we need people to sign up at fairfightaction.com. You'll get our emails. We do blast emails. We don't overwhelm you. And while we do raise money, we don't do it every day. <laughs> but we this is an expensive endeavor. We are fighting for our democracy. We know that Georgia is not the only state in the nation that has faced the kind of voter suppression we're talking about, but Brian Kemp perfected it. Almost every issue that you hear about in other states happens in Georgia. And because we have so many different pieces, we actually just this week released 200 affidavits of voters who found themselves as victims of voter suppression from having the the names they selected on their voting machines switched to being denied the right to go and vote, being told that they were at the wrong, wrong precinct, traveling across town to a new precinct only to find out that that was the wrong one too. There was a, as I like to say, a seamless mix of incompetence and malfeasance run by Brian Kemp. But the litigation that we are funding will not apply simply to Georgia. It's federal litigation, which means it will help every state. And so we ask for people to sign up so they can find out what we're doing. They can respond to our calls to action for phone calls, for emails, for text, but they can also invest in the work we're doing. And if they're in Georgia or across the country, if you're a lawyer, we'd love to have your help. If you want to volunteer to go and collect stories, we'd love to have you. We have lots of work for folks to do, and we look forward to anybody who wants to be a part of it signing up and we'll get you engaged. Wonderful. And I had the pleasure of being on the ground in Georgia during your election 
We did some great work with Higher Heights. We did Black Women Lead Georgia to support you, Congresswoman Lucy McBath now, State Representative Shelley Hutchinson, and being on the ground, I did see all of that energy that there was for you. And I was very honest with people. And I said, if Leader Abrams doesn't win, it's because they have to cheat to win because she is that strong of a candidate and the people of Georgia need her. And you just resonated so much across the United States with your election. I remember reading that you were the number one most Googled candidate in 2018. (laughs) And I've just really enjoyed other people getting to know who you are just as a person, as a leader, as a candidate. And I let out a little scream when I saw the tweet that you were going to be delivering the Democratic response to the State of the (laughs) Union. So that was my response. But what was your response when you got that call? I was actually with uh, Leader Schumer when we had the initial conversation, and then we had a phone call when I actually accepted. It was extraordinary. I, Of all the things I expected to happen that day, that was not, not only not on the list, it wasn't on the secondary list or in the universe or in the atmosphere. And so I was very surprised and deeply humbled by the offer. It means a lot to know that the leaders of our country saw our campaign, saw our work, and thought enough of me to ask me to take this step. To be very clear, I gave that speech as a as an average citizen, as someone who does not hold public office. And I think that is an, a meaningful thing, as is the fact that I was the first Black woman to deliver the response. And what I tried to do in that moment was really offer not only a rebuke for what we know has gone horribly wrong under the current administration, but to also remind us of why we are fighting so hard because we fundamentally believe in our nation and believe in each other. And we can withstand so much, including an administration that seems to have very little respect for most of us. It was just really amazing to see you on TV delivering the response as the first Black woman, as the first non-city member of Congress. So when you were writing your speech, what was the number one thing that you were hoping would really resonate with the American people that were watching it. I began my speech with a story about my family. Now, we only had one car, so sometimes my dad had to hitchhike and walk long stretches during the 30-mile trip home from the shipyards. One rainy night, my mom got worried, and we eventually found my dad making his way along the road, soaked and shivering in his shirt sleeves. When he got in the car, My mom asked if he'd left his coat at work. He explained that he'd given it to a homeless man he'd met on the highway. When we asked why he'd given away his only jacket, my dad turned to us and said, I knew when I left that man he'd still be alone, but I could give him my coat because I knew you were coming for me. Our power and strength as Americans lives in our hard work and our belief in more. My family understood firsthand that while success is not guaranteed, we live in a nation where opportunity is possible. But we do not succeed alone. In these United States, when times are tough, we can persevere because our friends and neighbors will come for us. And there were those on the other side who have decried the story, uh, you know, 
storytelling is a is a hard thing to do sometimes, and you have to get a lot into a small um, snippet of time. And I only had eleven minutes, <laughs> so I, I did a truncated version. But I wanted folks to know three things. One, that where I began, like so many Americans, it was from a place of challenge. Number two, I wanted them to understand that our challenges can make us stronger. And most importantly, I wanted them to understand that we are tied together, that we are united by our common belief that we are responsible for one another. As much as there are reasons to despise what we have seen happen to our nation in the last few years, what troubles me the most is the just the common the commonness of selfishness, how easily selfish our country has become under that man's leadership. And it it was important to me to remind us of our common purpose, our common good, our common morals, that we do things for each other, not because of what it will do for us, but because it's the right thing to do. And I learned that from my parents. You talk a lot about togetherness and people supporting one another And we are just coming off of Power Rising, which you headlined for the second year in a row. And for our listeners who don't know, Power Rising is a conference for Black women that is put on by Black women. And it was, once again, wonderful to see you there. This year, I brought my mom and my aunt, and they were very excited about coming. But then when they got the email that you were going to speak, they got even more excited because they heard me talk about you so much. And they know just the respect and admiration that I have for you. But in that room, all of these Black women just had so much love for you. And it was great to see because there's just this narrative that Black women don't support other Black women. But anyone in that room absolutely knew that it wasn't true. When you ended your conversation with Melissa Harris-Perry, the room broke out in the chant of run, Stacey, run. When Melissa asked, if someone were to run for Senate who is in this room, stand up if you would write them a check, every woman in that room stood up. What does it mean to you to have that type of national support from Black women who are really rooting you on and want to see you do great things in this country. This past five months, um, and particularly the last two and a half months since the election, has been incredibly difficult. It is hard to work for something, not just for the two years of my campaign, but for the last 10 years in politics, for the last 20 years as, you know, a civic leader, as someone who's cared about community, and for 45 years wanting to see better. And to your point, to to not, I I refuse to say I lost, but to not win because of the manipulations of others and to not have the closure that either comes with knowing I should have done X differently and this would have happened differently. But instead what I'm left with is this man had the authority to steal votes from fellow citizens. And so it's a dark space to be in. I'm angry. I'm sad. But I'm also energized every day because of the support of, of women across the country, of people across the country, especially Black women. Black women who stood in solidarity with me when there was pushback about how I was approaching my campaign. 
physically, the fact that I don't look the way people might expect a, a candidate to look, who stood with me when I was attacked by both folks within our party and outside our party, and who not only shared my struggle, but amplified my message and said, look, I share her problems. I've faced this myself and I've got her back. Uh, Power Rising, Higher Heights, the work that you do, the work that's being done across this country, I get to be a beneficiary. But what I love so much is that it's proof positive that we are there for each other. That doesn't mean we will let folks operate with impunity, but it says that you're allowed to be who you are. And that means making mistakes. It means stumbling and falling. And that rather than stepping on each other, we're going to stop, help you up, maybe give you some advice about what to do next time, but that we're in this together. And that to me is the most incredible gift of this community. And I'm, I'm grateful for it every day. We love you so much, Stacey. And what you just said, you're just authentic. And so many Black women, they can see aspects of themselves in you. And I know for me, I got a lot out of that reading your book, Minority Leader. And I tell people the best way I can describe it is, it's the book that I wish I had when I was coming up in politics, but it was also the book that I needed now for where I am in politics. So when you started writing the book, what were your hopes for the people reading it? What did you want them to take away from the advice that you were sharing, very personal advice about your story, your journey, your hardships. So the book Minority Leader is actually being re-released at the end of March as Lead from the Outside. When I started writing it, I really wanted to write an advice book. That was the goal. And my editor very strongly encouraged me to tell my own stories. I didn't want to at first because I thought that there's something a bit self-indulgent sometimes in memoir. You get to write your your remembrance of your history and people are often much kinder to themselves than they should be. <laughs> and I don't I don't like that. But what I was able to do was to excavate my mistakes and to think about how do I tell the story of how I stumbled, how I made errors and judgment, ways I'm growing, and use that to tell the story of how I've been successful. Um, and, and yes, talk about the ways I've been successful on its own, but more often than not, we are, we're led to believe this myth that success just happens and that the people who are successful did it on their own and that they were self-generated you know, glory purveyors. I know that's not true. And so for me, the opportunity was to look back at what I've faced, good and bad, look at what I've done, good and bad, and take from it, extract from it what lessons I could share with others so that they wouldn't have to do the same. I, I wish I had known people who had my story, but in many of the, the areas I've operated in, there weren't people like me there before. So whether it was starting a small business, and, and that's the other piece, I wanted to talk about every facet of my life, not just the politics, but whether you're in politics or you're trying to help your community through the civic space and, and through the nonprofit space, or you want to start a business. I wanted to talk about each of those pieces because too often we're taught that the lessons in one don't translate to the other. And what I wanted people to understand is that the lessons are true everywhere. 
whether it's fundraising, you got to fundraise in business, you've got to fundraise in nonprofits, and you certainly have to fundraise in politics. There are lessons that I learned that I've been able to use and, and cross-fertilize the mistakes that I make, mistakes about how I present myself or how I think about who I am before I present myself. I wanted to give some advice. Look, here's what I did. You can either do what I did, do something else, but at least you've got a roadmap. And I wanted most of all for people to be able to take this book and to be able to come back to it, to not just have it be a one-day read or you know a one-week read, but something that they could thumb through, bookmark, and say, I, I remember her saying this thing. Let me see how I can make that apply. For me, the best books are the ones you read over and over again because the, the truths are so strong. And that's what I wanted this to be. Our final question for you is, what advice do you have for the brown girls listening that are saying, I want to be just like her? <laughs> I would say no. You need to be just like you. And that means figuring out the you you want to be. Of course, I have a book that can help you figure it out. But, <laughs> but what I mean most sincerely is that one way I've been very successful is that I've never tried to be anyone else. And that's hard, but it's also fantastic because that means what I do is it's a reflection of who I am. It's authentic and intentional. I can learn from other people, but I never tried to be other people. Brown girls need to embrace who they are warts and all. Find ways to make the warts better. Find ways to make the better best, but always hold true to who you are and believe that who you are is good. And that makes the rest of it much, much more easily survived. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time. You are just the best, Stacey. I love you so much. Thank you, dear. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to catch us next week as we dive deeper into the sisterhood of women of color and politics. To keep up to date with us, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The BG Guide, or you can send us an email at contact at thebgguide.com. You can find out more about what Wonder Media Network is up to on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMNmedia. It just became very, very real. <laughs> oh my goodness.